Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc you are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called financial ineptitude anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by financial ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Shop. I am your host, Kyle, and joining me for today's roundtable is a pair of Eric's. We have economist Eric Mason and Eric Smolinski of ES Invests. I know that might get a little confusing, guys, but so to avoid any of that, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stress the different spellings between the two different names. So when I say Eric with a K, uh, then you know that I'm talking to Eric Smolinski. When I say Eric with a C, then you know I'm talking to Eric Mason. That should take care of everything, right? If you would like, you can uh, you can refer to me as Mason, if that makes it easier. It's half my life I've been called that. It's- I got I got two first names. <laughs> and I was just gonna say, anyways, for um, you could always just call me Daddy, and that's fine too. <laughs> uh, what, what is that not is that not different enough? You guys can't hear the K. I mean, as as some of my name is spelled Kyle, I get pissed when people call me Kyle. You know, you know what I mean. <laughs> No, too much. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, since we just pre-recorded our normal little uh, before we dive into things, uh, we could just jump right into today's discussion. I think we've got we wanted to kick things off with uh, a question from White Boy Rick, which I think you you noted was your favorite name here. It's by far my favorite name. Since since this should uh, kind of key in uh, uh, our flavor, basically the all your responses. So, are you? 
Keynesian neoclassical or new Keynesian, and what does any of that mean? Um, all right, so unfortunately, I'm none of those things. Uh, I am what you call an Austrian. Uh, <laughs> so I thought. I thought you'd said that many times. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm very open about my love of Austrianism. So. What an Austrian means is that we believe, so it's founded by Friedrich Hayek, who was a contemporary of John Maynard Keynes. So what, 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 what Austrianism is, is it has really two definitions. One is kind of your classical definition is, is that I believe that prices matter and interest rates matter, that any effort to distort market prices or to distort interest rates, um, regardless of intentions, lead to a more inefficient economy. Um, so it's very important to preserve prices. Prices solve uh, problems because prices relay information efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what it means from a practical sense is I believe in the man on the spot that say, for example, somebody goes and buys a car, that individual buying a car knows more about his individual economy than all the great economists in the world combined together. That no matter how much education I have, how much education the thousands of economists who are smarter than me have, that we don't know the individual better than the individual knows himself. And if you take all those individual transactions from buying a car to shopping for groceries to picking a job and you sum all those together, what you get is the economy. So Hmm. my belief is that we allow individuals to make decisions and we observe that, Um, which is a real kind of wussy way to say, I don't believe in these massive macroeconomic trends and these pushes and pulls. Um, Yeah, I'm just uh, I like Austrianism because it's I hate to say it, but it's 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 Oakham's razor. it sounds like the the lazy economist way. <laughs> I don't have to do any of that other work. We'll just let everybody else figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think I'm smarter than anybody else. That's really what I come down to. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I have a question on that. How do you reconcile um, like irrational consumer behavior? Mm. Yeah, so, so that's one of those questions. So you get like, and I kind of like the discussion of irrationalism. Um, so one of the pillars of economics, we have several pillars, but like one of the three major pillars is people behave rationally, which is nonsense. It's people, people behave rationally given the information they know. So whenever, like I actually use this even in my, in my day to day life, which is that like if me and somebody, myself and somebody else comes up with different ideas or conclusions, I always assume there's an asymmetry in information. A lot of the questions like they'll come back to anything we discuss in economics is I think everything's asymmetrical information. Um, and so you may have an irrational consumer that we view as irrational, that they view as rational, um, just because they may be perceiving the situation or the maximization of utility differently. So they're making rational decisions, but their interpretation of the data is necess- not necessarily correct is what you're saying? Yeah. Like somebody like, uh, somebody could be making a decision they think is rational because they don't understand. Like people who buy essential oils could think they're making an irrational decision Mm-mm. because they're not familiar with like science or any or, or, or you know just anything <laughs> well i guess that to to peel that layer back just one one more step one of the things i see in trading is it's not necessarily always an information gap but sometimes we have an overarching preference that still overrides a known rational better decision but we still pick the other one for whatever reason um, do you guys account for that in your view of economics as well or no? Like, for example, you could have somebody with uh, XYZ budget 
and they know it makes more sense to buy something that's $5,000 cheaper that firmly fits within their budget, and they know that, but their preference still supersedes that, and then they overextend a little bit, whatever the case is, obviously just a random example, but I'm curious if that also gets layered into your decision cycle. It's not just the information gap, but like a known choice being made. Yeah, I do. It's funny, Eric. You, uh, I, w- I was going to actually bring up trading because trading is kind of like the Hall of Fame example for what can be perceived as a rational activity for how people invest. Uh, so you, you actually nothing probably, is rational there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you, know, <laughs> the, you, you have way more application knowledge of that than I do. But yeah, we, we, do have, we actually have a name for that whole study of that kind of overconsumption, uh, and it's called marginal propensity of consumption. So economists, we measure if you give somebody a dollar, how much money do they spend? So in the United States, if you give somebody a buck, they spend about a buck oh five, a buck ten. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's the cost of freedom. In Germany, it's about 85 cents. <laughs> America. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so we, we do account for that. And it, it's it, what we measure in economics, especially in the Austrian world, um, and to be honest, even in the microeconomic world, is, you, is the maximization of utility, the maximization mm-hmm. of happiness. So like, Somebody may overspend because they're getting marginally more utility, marginal more happiness from that overspend versus the accrued debt they're taking on. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's decisions. Like, to me, like, I hate debt. Um, but there's other people who have no problem, like, you know, trading on margin, which blows my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. But if that seems irrational to me, it doesn't mean it's necessarily irrational to an individual actor. Right. And not to follow too down in a rabbit hole, this stuff, honestly, it's just generally curious to me. Um, well, keep going, dude. This is interesting. Yeah. But to, to follow down um, kind of that same cycle of rational, is there any sort of way that you guys measure temporary irrationality and then kind of a normalization post, you know, like talking impulse purchases or something like that, or like how does stuff like that fit in? Yeah. Um, I forget. I think it was Greenspan, uh, irrational exuberance, um, mm. in the market, the dead cat, the dead cat bounce is irrational uh-huh. exuberance. Uh-huh. Um, why are people buying? Uh, actually, I was gonna say, why are people buying Credit Suisse right now? But that's probably probably wrong. But because I mean, there's more to that than than just that. But yeah, let me also got short sellers that got to close out that adds buying pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, say that again. Um, so I'll give you a better example that's probably less likely to hit people in the wallet is uh, Cards Against Humanity. Uh, every year after, <laughs> so their biggest sale sale day is Black Friday. Um, and they actually raise the price of Cards Against Humanity, and people buy it. Huh. And um, we really don't know how to explain that phenomenon. Um, some people just think it's it's worth the joke, and that's why where be that may be where people are driving utility. Uh, but we would call that almost like an inverse giffing good in economics. Does, you don't think it has to do with the families being in town for Thanksgiving and not having anything to do with them? <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> the, so there, there was a um, – God, I feel so bad because I, I can't remember the, who wrote it. But there was a paper written saying that the people who are buying Cards Against Humanity at that higher price are people who have no idea what it is and are just buying it as a Christmas gift. And so uh-huh. they're just logging online <laughs> and buying it, not knowing, assuming that it's a lower price because it's Black Friday. Ooh, does anybody else do that? Because that seems like a brilliant idea. It does seem like a brilliant idea. <laughs> uh, I might have to look that up real quick while you guys are talking. Another kind of follow on that same path. How do you guys balance, I guess, like the, the concept of convenience falls into marginal utility. Does that sound right? Like 
Um, if you wanted to buy a product ABC and you already have three products in your Amazon cart, but it's, you know, it's slightly more expensive on whatever other in Amazon compared to another site. Um, does that kind of fall into that same marginal utility? Yeah, so bucket? it kind of does. So part of marginal. So if you go, you know, you, you go back one derivative on margin utility to just like aggregate cost. We have this thing called shoe leather costs or transaction costs. So it's easier just to click that button and buy off Amazon, then load up another website, buy the product, type everything in. So it's like mm-hmm. that time exchange. And I, and I just want to be clear. I'm like, I'm only, I can only really speak on Austrianism. Like I saw a white boy Rick's question asked like Keynesianism, neoclassicalism, new Keynesianism. And, uh, you know, Kyle, you said like, what's the difference? It's like, well, Keynesianism yeah. is more of a, is a, is macroeconomic. So before John Maynard Keynes, there was no macroeconomics. All right. That didn't exist. There was only microeconomics in like, which is at that point was almost like proto utilitarianism. Well, what and did Adam so, Smith do? Yeah. So Adam Smith is a, uh, saying this as somebody who, who read wealth, uh, wealth of nations very young. Um, so both Adam Smith and, uh, Karl Marx and Rousseau, mm-hmm. they're philosophers. So they're not, they're not actual mm-hmm. economists. Gotcha. Um, Adam Smith more described a phenomenon. Um, I am a true believer and people can you know disagree with me on this, but I do think capitalism is a natural state. So Adam mm-hmm. Smith really wrote about like what describing what happens where like Karl Marx, ironically, who was sponsored by Friedrich Engels, whose father was a very, very wealthy industrialist. Um, if you read Das Capital, like Das Capital is a huge book, but I recommend I, I tell everybody to read it because you read it and be like, oh, this is why this doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you read it and be like, oh, this is clearly wrong. Um, so, no, so those are kind of the philosophy of it. But actually, how to analyze markets and understand, like, really squeeze something out of it that's rational economics uh, didn't really come about till um, John Maynard Keynes wrote his two treaties um, in the 1920s. So we, we, but yeah, new Keynesianism, Keynesianism, I, it's so funny because I'm on the, Keynesianism's capitalism, all right? There's this weird belief that Keynesianism's socialism. It's not, it's it's not socialism. Socialism is the government owns the means of production. Right. Keynesians don't believe that. Keynesians believe the government should have a large and impactful uh, presence in the market, that they should drive markets, but they don't believe in the, in public ownership of means of production. So I find myself defending Keynesians way more than anybody who's anti-Keynesian should ever defend them because they'll call them socialists. I'm like, they're not socialists. They're capitalists just like we are. They just like more government in their soup. Don't confuse them with socialists. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of the definition around here sometimes. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to be biased this whole, whole discussion on the my worldview. So I don't want anybody to think I'm talking with like absolute authority on economics. Like now I'm just talking about my one really small worldview. Right, right, right. Fair enough. Well, should we? Uh, now that we we kind of touched a little bit on the trading. Should we dive into like the main topic here that you wanted to bring up, Eric? Yeah. Why don't economics, economics <laughs> people, economists give me shit about my intro? People that yeah. <laughs> no, I the amount of times I've been called economic economic person in my career in various speaking events makes me really, really nervous that I've been saying it wrong the entire time. <laughs> Actually, that actually brings me a quick question. This shouldn't take long. Is it economics or economics? Oh, okay, so it depends what side of the pond you're on. I say economics. My I British have... friends say economics. 
I, I barely a speak English. History so. teacher who who did that too. He or it was an economics teacher, but he said it's the economy, so it's economics. Okay, so that's okay. Yeah, well, that's, you can be Eric Mason then. Yeah, I know, right? That's, <laughs> that's really what we're doing. Like the word right. photo. Look at the way the word photo is spelled. Like it's supposed to be like pohoto. That's oh, how what about <laughs> what about comb and tomb and <laughs> yeah, any right. other? Yeah, why don't they rhyme? They, yeah, they right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, let's uh, get to the let's get to the real question. <laughs> As I was saying, why don't economics? <laughs> why, why don't why don't economists trade at large? In your opinion, um, there's a handful of them that I know. I know one of them that does actively trade, but he's not like active in economics anymore he's he just kind of classifies himself as a macro economics dude but i've always found it entertaining that most of the economics community that i know of or the economic community is not super into like actively trading i have my my hunches but i'm curious from your perspective uh, what why that's the case yeah i think it's i think it's twofold um one i think there's a lot of like uh, you know, I always say, you know, economics names itself the dismal science, all right? Like, and we're the most pessimistic optimist you'll ever, you'll ever meet in the world. So, like, I don't think I'm smarter than the market, all right? I don't think I can beat the market. Like, I've taken derivative courses. I have all those permissions turned on on my trading account. Um, I've certainly bought options. I, I, know, I love the math and the systems that exist around trading. That's why, like... Uh, like Eric, like your, your your channel, I find wicked interesting because it's it is interesting. I love seeing how the mentality of the people who play in their arena think. Um, I think most economists are fascinated by by you, Eric. I really do. I think the in your, the people in your world are hmm. fascinating to us. But we view you guys the same way. I go and watch a football game. Like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, I don't want to throw out my back um, <laughs> because there's an acceptance that we don't we don't think anybody can beat the market. Um, a lot of economists think that. But we know that it's possible. So I guess with that, is it just that you feel like um, it's not worth the effort? Yeah. But, and I mean, you can even look beyond like retail traders, right? Like there's a lot of like hedge funds and stuff like that with really well audited, documented reports. Same thing if you look at like the US investing championship mm -hmm. is that plenty of people beat the market. And multiple times too. And it just- Yeah, so- Go finish, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason why I've always found it so interesting is because to me, there's a lot of overlap between the two. And at least in the way that I go about creating wealth and maintaining wealth, I'm always looking to leverage efficiencies. Yeah. Like if I'm spending time on something and I can find other ways to make money on that same thing I'm spending the time on already, why wouldn't I do that? Right. So that's really the, the angle I'm approaching the question from. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't want to... Uh too deep in this side of my personal life, but my, uh, I have a, my cousin manages one of the largest large cap portfolios in the world. Um, I certainly believe he beats the market. Um, he does. He beats the market. He called, he bought Whole Food just before Amazon bought it. I mean, he's on, if you turn on Bloomberg, you turn on MSNBC, um, you'll see him. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think he beats the market, uh, but I think he's part of the market. Um, I think part of, a, you know, when you talk about maybe not day trading, because but you talk about trying to beat the market in the long run. The strategies you take, if they're optimized strategies, are optimized in the long run. So like short run investment decisions always seem very weird to economists. Um, we don't really, it's not that it's luck because you can have people like yourself, Eric, who 
work their absolute behind off and know how to, you know, make it around a corner before somebody else. I just don't think there's enough of people like you in the market to think it's a sustainable strategy. And as an economist, I therefore, if I'm not devoting all my time to watching your YouTube videos, following all the market and doing all that, I know I'm going to lose because there's people like you out there who are going to take my lunch. And that's the way it should be. That like, if you're the person putting in all the time, you're the person putting all the work in, whether you're somebody doing it on your own, ripping apart data, or you're managing a $10 billion large cap portfolio, and you got an army of of data nerds like me, you're going to win. You're going to win more than Erickson behind his computer. And as an economist, it tells me that that's no marginal gain for me. I'm better off throwing my money into an ETF. Does my person, has my personal investment portfolio outperformed the market? Yeah. Yeah, it has because I know a little bit more than the average bear, but it's outperformed it over the course of, you know, 10 years. I can't beat somebody day to day. I can't beat somebody year to year. I have to beat somebody because I bought a bunch of copper and silver. um, What do you call uh, ETFs before that went through the roof? I'm somebody who saw that we were running out of heat, you know, helium is becoming a more scarce resource and fiber optics are becoming more in demand, which use helium. So what do you, I looked for companies that you, that build fiber optics and I was like, okay, well, what, what's the biggest companies they use? And I found out the companies that use the helium. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to invest in those companies because, like, but I, that, I just know that. That is actively but trading. Trade. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah, but I, I would say I'm making that decision over the course of five years. That doesn't matter. There, people trade on all sorts of different time frames. The fact that you're actively going in there and trying to manage a position or trimming something because economic headwinds have changed, like you're acting on information to try to do better than just buy and hold. So this is this is interesting, and I, I'm going to flip it around to you two guys on this. Mm-hmm. You consider that active trading. You consider a 10-year strategy where you're just ho- sitting and holding because you you know helium's becoming more scarce. Like, that's active. Do you consider that active trading? I would if you're actively choosing a sector over another sector. It's interesting. So any differential, any differ, differential from like the Russell 2000, you would consider diverse. You'd consider that act, active versus passive investment. It, it sounds more active to me than this is than what you make it than what you made it sound like uh, when you initially started your your discussion there. You can call uh, it rant. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah, Eric, Eric. Uh, you want to back me up on that, or you? You think I'm in the wrong? I literally got disconnected oh, and just in right as you said that. So what did you? I have no idea where we left uh, off. He was telling us about how he manages his portfolio, and then yep. I was basically making the argument that anytime you're making uh, actively managing your positions, doesn't matter the time frame, that's still actively trading, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, like you're using information to try to outperform the markets as a general. I. Yeah, I have no dog in the fight. To me, it's potato, tomato, potato, whatever. Oh, because it's like <laughs> I think you know, tr- typical typical terminology. We would say like trading is you know entering and exiting within a year, and investing is greater mm-hmm, yeah. than a year. But even that is, I, it, it's all it's all bullshit. the The way that I view it is like if somebody's actively expressing a thesis then we're, right. we're either actively trading or actively investing, but it's certainly not passive, which yeah. that's yes, probably yes. a better, that's- yeah, that's probably a better preamble way to ask the question, you know, passive versus active um, investing versus trading. But yeah, I, I, I agree with the overall sentiment though, that it's definitely based on what I was hearing before um, my internet decided to take a nap. 
was it, it sounded more active than but that sounds right like that sounds like exactly yeah. what i would expect to be occurring but uh, whenever you ask people like you never get that that answer out of them it's just no i i can't beat the market yeah because well, it sounds like you can you just it, it's just a different time frame you know the markets are fractal yeah. right patterns repeat yeah. upon repeat upon a repeat yeah, I mean that's you know God, that's a that's a good way to word it. I think that's really where the I I, th I think you'd be hard pressed to find an economist who does that. Uh, let me call it short term active trading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's the market. See, I'm a big believer that the only way you make money in the market in the short run is asymmetry in information. Not to, to jump back to what I said earlier. I don't think that's uh, true. That you either. Do you say you don't think it's true or you think it's true? No, not, not at all. Like if you look at really well-documented phenomenon and derivatives markets like variance risk premiums, um, it's not, not asymmetry in information whatsoever. Like everybody has that information. Oh. Some of it is, a yeah, some of it is a matter of convenience. Some of it is a matter of sizing. Um, some of it is a matter of essentially balanced risk profiles. Like it's the same reason why we have like put uh, put skew on options. Obviously I'm talking about a lot of option stuff cause that's mostly where I spend my time. But yeah, I think, um, I definitely w wouldn't, I, I don't think one from my opinion, I don't think that's the case, but more importantly, I, I don't even think like the, the broader documentation would support that, especially, well, um, well, there's a difference, yeah, it's the difference. between at open information, the information sitting there and people trading on that information. Those are two different things. The just person's understanding of the information? Yes. Just because yeah. the information exists out there doesn't mean everybody's using that information to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And when somebody, the information only becomes part of the decision once a decision's made. It's like like every price exists in the market till it transacts. Okay. So just because information is publicly available, like, like if, if all information was used all the time, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> I'd be out of a job. It'd be, it, it would be. I mean, like, but if somebody's so if I'm going in, like I, I did a, I have a, I can share the Excel file or the Google Doc. So I did this um, study because I love, I'm a nerd. I love airplanes. I think airplanes are the coolest things in the world. And I think airplanes are great indicators of so many things in the market um, and in economies in general. So I analyzed using uh, regression discontinuity design um, the impact on uh, put call spreads after airplane crashes for Boeing over the last 35 airplane crashes. Okay, that's information that exists in the market, but how many people even know what RDD is? I don't. So can, can somebody trade on that information? It's information that exists, but is that information relative? I mean, I, I would be hard-pressed to, to see if there's people actually trading Boeing stock on RDD. Hmm. So when we're talking about then of information asymmetry, you're bifurcating it not by whether or not it's available, but whether or not large numbers of people utilize it? Yeah, so it's what what's the dominant information standard in the market? Um, whatever the dominant information, so everything in economics is marginal. All right, we only mar measure marginal effects. So Eric, you work you behind off, and you're like, I understand this better. I looked up this data better than the average Joe who's just like me throwing money into an ETF or just doing a long hold strategy that's not as nimble. You deserve to win. Your people deserve to win on that because you're extracting more information. You're not the same as some some guy just calling up his CFA and putting five thousand dollars in the market. And you guys, you guys as investors shouldn't be treated the same. You're different actors in the market. Sure, that that part makes sense. But I guess the part I go back to is like you know going back to the the study you just 
you know, talked about, right? Like if you study the last 35 crashes in Boeing and you know how put call ratios then um, react around a crash, like, isn't that a short-term tradable event for you? It is. And do you know what I did with that data? I watched the stock price over the next six months, saw that my, my conclusion was correct and said, oh, that's interesting. And went back to investing in ETFs. <laughs> Can I have that paper? <laughs> I'll share it with you. Hold on. I, no, I definitely kidding. have it. Uh, just because I was like, ooh, I wonder if my math is right. Hmm. I have, I have it. I think I've logged in here. So is it, do you think it's a matter of like, you're not like super confident in the outcome and you would want to understand the outcome before placing any money at risk? Because to me, like if, if I had that same conviction or even the same hypothesis, I would speculate. And then I obviously would manage funds, but um, on, yeah, exactly. On like little things like that, there is a life changing amount of money that can be made. Yeah. It, but I don't disagree with that at all. Like, I think one of the frustrating parts, I'm going to share this with you guys. Um, I think one of the frustrating parts of what I'm, you know, what I'm going to say is that that's not how we view it. We, we're, we're, we're nihilist to a certain point. Where it's just the market's going to homogenize, and then what's the move after that? Is see that's where like people who think out the long like a combination of a bunch of short term strategies into one like you said life defining sequence of 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 transactions that's a different beast. Like economists don't think that way. We view everything as these long beautiful curves. We don't view anything as these like short run events. There's currently an uh, there's currently a very big argument in economics right now. Or it has been over the last 30 years, is does long-run aggregate supply exist? And I know that sounds really nerdy. Um, does that exist? Does long-run aggregate supply exist? Now, that may sound stupid. What, what is Eric saying? He's talking about long-run aggregate supply. What the hell is long-run aggregate supply? Well, it has a different name. Yeah, that was actually my question. Exactly. G, <laughs> it has another name, GDP. That's what long-run long aggregate supply is. There are economists who don't believe GDP exists. Okay, yeah, okay that longer and aggregate supply doesn't exist. And that's based on uh, actually a pretty important, uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, LMIS uh, model, which is like the basis of macroeconomic analysis. They think all GDP is, is a bunch of short run aggregate supplies that are cobbled together to form longer aggregate supply. They basically think there's three children in a trench coat trying to sneak into a movie and that's GDP. <laughs> that's probably my favorite analogy I think I've ever heard. <laughs> that's a great visual. Yeah. I'm a giant fan of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so like you could do all this analysis and I, you know, I just shared with you guys what my, what my RDD analysis was for Boeing. And it's like, oh, that's great. That's cool. We don't even know if if these long run principles are correct. So I'm, we're not going to act on short run data. We're just more trying to figure out if our model makes sense or not. Hmm. I love this because this, to me, it also like really bolsters a really common um, issue with traders and investors. And it's it's fascinating to hear it extend to kind of economists, at least in the way that you're sharing the thought process, where there's a really huge gap between theoretical and structural understanding and like the art of actually trading, right? And actually taking risk. Mm -hmm. So it's it's fascinating to me to hear you kind of explain some of these concepts because as a trader, like I literally, based on the last like five things you said, there's like five tradable ideas. <laughs> and I, I would be speculating on just about all of them. So like this, this thing I shared with you guys, um, this BA analysis, this Boeing analysis, <clears throat> I built this for a 
very for a pro, uh, because of a discussion I had with a uh, fairly prominent YouTube day trader. Mm, okay, because he was kind of, he kind of had a similar comment about like, hey, like how does this stuff work? Like, can you? He he's he was fascinated by the field of econometrics. And that, like, you can nerd out this stuff because there's no different than what you guys are looking at. Or, I mean, uh, I mean, feel free to link it. It's for informational yeah, purposes okay. only, but to, to to anybody on, just so they don't think we're talking about nonsense. Oh, we have we have disclaimers. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, you guys have great disclaimers. Would you want to take advice from a, from a show called Financial Adaptitude? Is the best disclaimer. <laughs> Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back. Fresh off a rebrand and ready to help is Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc uh, but it's because like this is what hedge fund traders do this is actually i would argue that most hedge funds don't use rdd for some very nerdy mathematical reasons why they don't use it but like he was like wait a minute like average joe can access this i'm like yeah our programming's free just Eric, just like you said, all this data is free and available. And if you just know how to manipulate it, you can see all these crazy trends. And that that gentleman, good dude, what did he say to me? It's the same thing you said. Why aren't you trading on this? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, to quote John Manor Keynes, because in the long run, we're all dead. Everything comes back to normal. Like, <laughs> it's such a nihilist approach. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, it's so silly because, yeah, and. In- in the long run, sure, but you know, as soon as you make that money, well, the short run looks real good. Yeah, it's a lot more fun in the short run. <laughs> yep. This would be more willing to day trade if it wasn't a good paying field. It's not the best paying field, but I definitely think we'd be if we were like making like minimum wage, I think we'd probably be more more apt to do this. Well, I think and I I mean, I think even the the idea of relegating, you know, an approach to like day trading in and of itself to me is super unappealing because to me that that seems like a grind. It's actually funny to me because, you know, a couple of times I know that you were doing it, um, being really kind, saying, you know, how hardworking um, I am. And it's if you talk to Kyle, 
um it's kind of the inverse <laughs> for you the, the way that i view it the way that i view it is like you're you're absolutely right and you know i look at the amount of time and i i've spent easily probably 32 to 35,000 hours in total on like the skill set but the at this point it's like it's all maintenance man like i know what i'm doing i know what i'm looking for i know how to find it so a lot of what i do is actually like super fucking boring uh, mostly chess and, videos yeah dude like exactly i was actually joking with kyle about that he like introduced me to the world of online chess so for like the last what two or three weeks mm -hmm. i literally am probably spending like six to eight hours a day just fucking around with chess realizing how stupid i am at that too <laughs> it's like a never-ending list but yeah i feel like the the skill set once it's there is pretty well developed and it's just it's so fascinating to me man because it sounds like you you're even the way that you're approaching the problem set is the way that i would approach the problem set the difference is, is I would just just a little money speculate, just, yeah. just just a skosh. This is, yeah, and <laughs> maybe there's a difference between you know long term investing and day trading. There's a middle ground in there that's called swing trading, where yeah. you can you know take positions for up to like six months at a time. Like, there's is that fun yeah. though? Like, do you enjoy doing that? Like, nah, dude, uh, <laughs> it depends on what time you have. It really, what what right? I what I tell people is like trading is a business. Like trading is yes. not for a hobbyist yeah. and I do enjoy trading. Like I find it interesting, but the point of trading is to take the money I make and use that to enjoy. Like I was just telling Kyle, like I bought a McLaren in cash, like what, two months ago. And it's, you know, it's not because the McLaren people are just super nice and like Eric. It's because I hand them money and now I get to like realize some of the fruits of the labor. So to me, I very much approach trading um, as, as a means to the. Exactly. Like I, I am. Yeah. Exactly. I'm very intellectually curious by it, but I actually think that can be a bigger like problem than an asset. Because I think a lot of people run into big problems when they trade and they view it as a hobby. It's something that's fun, that's interesting, because all these like sub subliminal, subconscious emotions creep into it. And now we have a fucked up approach. So I'm like, I'm really careful to separate them. But yeah, it can yeah. be. I mean, it's fascinating. You're already doing it. I know. I know. But you make you make you make money off that guy. Uh, well, sometimes, like I actually would also argue that trading, especially derivatives, isn't necessarily a zero sum game. Um, like each individual options contract discrete of any other position is in fact zero sum. Yeah. But when you look at the the total of a portfolio, it's not zero sum. Like if you look at um, a covered call, for example, somebody sold a call against long shares and it rallies. They lose on that short call. They've won on the long shares. They've won on the overall position. And the other person won because of the short call that fell on the money. So it's like, it's not exactly zero sum to that same degree once you kind of zoom out one one click. Okay, that makes more sense. That's the best description I've heard to argue against the zero sum. I mean, like, to, with me in there, there's a, there's a winner and a loser. Um, again, sort of. If you look at the individual position of the short call, sure, there's a winner and a loser. But if you look in the broader context of that overall position, they both technically made money. I, I think if you adjust for like the risk portfolio, somebody took on a lot because in economics, we, like 
we, we talk about risk. Risk is, you know, interest rates are functionality of risk, inflation, and desired rate of return. Mm-hmm. So they lost against the marginal risk. They got, even if they got a 2% return, the marginal risk they took on was, eight was you know, say worth 8%. So they had a negative 6% return against, against the position. It's like how... I guess you could... Yeah, I guess you could say that in a in a hypothetical standpoint, but I would just say the money in their pocket says otherwise. Yeah, and it, that is true, but it's uh, again, it's like with economics, everything's a measure a measure against the margin. Um, you know, it, but there's been pe- like it's how it's just a, it's an example of how the stock market isn't GDP. Mm-hmm. Economies and stock markets aren't related at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of evidence showing that in some cases are even inversely related. They have Ooh. a very weak coefi- uh, p-value coefficient when it comes to causality. This actually leads to like another like specific question I wanted to ask you. A lot of people talk about lead lag relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like the the perfect segue. So it sounds like you might not be a strong supporter of it, but I'm curious what your perspective is on just lead lag relationships. And for, well, you could probably explain it better than me, so I'm not going to dumb it down for everybody. You could probably do a better job than I can. (laughs) Dumbing it down. Yeah, yeah. well, obviously there's a certain level. Nice dig. I already carry around like the dumbest level of information, so. It's it's not that, I mean, the best type of uh, information is is used information. Like just Mm. knowing something is meaningless. Like uh, I had a one of my oh, uh, my my mentor in economics always said, ed, ed, uh, education for education's sake is a waste. Um, so you just pissed off every college professor on planet Earth. I, I teach in college too. <laughs> every single anthropologist major is now just screaming at me. <laughs> uh, uh, that's why, like, I make all my students like I, every time I think. For the college class I teach, I make my students actually like use application because I want them to that's see awesome. that it's real. Yeah, um, that's yeah, awesome. yeah. So like, you know, you, you could like lead lead lag. Um, there there are lag effects. So one of like my first big research projects I did was on uh, the asymmetric tax effects of firms of varying sizes. And what we looked at was we used the Roman Romare nonlinear tax series. So we basically said Roman Romare with these two wicked famous economists, husband and wife pair. And they basically analyzed every time Congress did a tax change, how did it affect business? How did it affect like the basically the revenues of, of corporations? So mm-hmm. I come from a small business family. I grew up pumping gas. So I was always fascinated, like how does a tax cut that's unilateral, how does it affect like my dad's small business versus like AT&T or BOA or any of these huge mm-hmm. What basically found out is that using a bunch of kind of fun math and a lot of computer computing power um, and way too much free time, um, we basically figured out that Firms are affected differently. So large firms, no matter how much you tax them, realistically never experience, unless you tax them at 99%, but let's say realistic tax rates, never really experience negative um, negative profits from taxation. Uh, that's because they can hire firms good enough or they can hire accounting firms that are skilled enough to avoid the taxation. So we use a 36-month lag period. So we use 12 quarters to analyze that. Um, you know, uh, small businesses they get they get popped for a few for a few quarters before they figure it out. So this idea of lag effect is real. Like I don't want to like dispute this idea that there's lag effects in the economy. I mean lag, lag effects in the stock market. I, I do believe in that. Um, but equities, the, the stock market, makes up a very 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 small portion of the overall economy. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
the, like if you compare like I trade like I I don't trade in, in, the, in that sense, but I deal a lot with public debt. I have a one point two billion dollar debt portfolio. I've sold a half a billion dollar bond for a pension obligation. Um, so like I I'm in the market every three months. I have a, a call with S and P tomorrow um, to get my to get my rating and. You have all this, you know. You have this information that flows into the market, but even the bond market is several times larger. The debt markets are several times larger than the equity markets. Um, oh yeah. And so, how much can the econ? How much does the economy care about the stock market? Doesn't really, because the stock market's not trading right. on real assets. You're not buying a piece of three M. You're not buying a piece of GE. You're buying an underlying position related to GE, like. You're not giving $100 to GE unless GE is selling treasury stock it has. That money's not flowing to GE and they're being used in, RD, in, in R&D, which is... Right. That's all done after the IPO is yeah. done. Right? Yeah. So the economy... I know I think a lot of economists agree with this, but I'm sure some economists will light me up later on this, is that the economy really doesn't care about the stock market. Um, the stock market's at the whims of the economy. Right. To be honest with you, I think I think public policy has a bigger impact on the stock market than, than the economy. I think whatever Elizabeth Warren's, you know, ranting about on any given Monday, I really should say that I'm in Massachusetts. I, how, I can, but... how, can, how does she not know? How does she know so little? Every time I hear her talk about anything financial related, I'm like, what? Well, I, I don't know why she's from Oklahoma and running in Massachusetts, but that's a, it's a different question. That's another question. question I have in my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, so is not to get like wicked off topic, but I'm just kind of like trying to build up why I think these lag effects aren't aren't the most material thing in an economist's mind. Um, I think what like to me, I'm a you know, I'm a free market. I'm a, somebody who grew up in the United States. I'm a capitalist. I really believe. I grew up in. You know, I guess anybody who grew up in the Western world should believe this. But we believe in the solar growth model. That capital accumulation builds economies, that the more capital your economy absorbs, the more your economy builds relative to how much depreciates out. I don't know what that has to do with the stock market, and that's where economic growth is. So that's another reason like economists don't like to trade, is because we have a you know a view of the world that's kind of the antithesis of how a lot of short term, let's say less than one year trading occurs. Um doesn't mean we're right, just means it's not our expertise. Right, right. Interesting. That's interesting. Uh, that actually kind of maybe it leads in a little bit uh, to one of the, we got to get to some of these uh, discord questions before we run out of time here. Uh, one of the questions that Robert and I were, were wondering was uh, the CPI data, like the housing data. Like, why does that, why is there such a lag in that, like compared to actual market conditions, like the, the information that they get for housing, like seems to be like six to 12 months uh, delayed. Yeah. So a lot of times it's delayed on purpose. And they use like, uh, they agglomerate the data, but that's because housing is so inliquid. Like mm-hmm. it's such a long transactionary period. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys, if, I'm sure you guys have bought houses where it's like, think of it, you buy oh, yeah. a house, you wait six months for the closing or sorry, 60 days for the closing. Then you close on it. But you, before you even put the offer on the house, you're already at the bank, walking an interest rate for a certain amount of money. Like, you know, I do some investment property. Maybe it's a little different because you have some liquidity on hand to to have shorter closing periods. But at the end of the day, you're talking months. Yeah, I was going to say you can close pretty quick with a cash deal. 
Yeah. Yeah. We oh, sold, yeah. You know, we sold a property right down the street from us probably about five years ago. We closed in 14 days. Yeah. Some, it was, I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm cool nice. with that. I guess you're cool with that. I guess we're fine. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> uh, so then what's the reasoning for that? Like, why, why would that, why would that, uh, like if the Fed is looking at CPI for, uh, guidance for whether or not they should raise or lower rates and there's a number in there that's should be coming down like how are they accounting for that lag so it's kind of like i'm gonna sound like a broken record with the marginality it's kind of like we don't look at the cpi like the cpi mm-hmm. never does matter address it's the change in the cpi so if that trend is so if you're measuring if your data is a year old and you're measuring it from today but the previous data was a year old that one it doesn't matter it, it, yeah it doesn't i would say it matters but it's not as impactful it's not like you're looking at data right. a year ago you're looking at a long horizon trend line in mm-hmm. cpi data to be honest and i play around with cpi data a lot it's it's honestly pretty close <laughs> not that that surprises anybody reading this um it, it, it's pretty realistic but also i'm not gonna i'm gonna be a jerk right now inflation's all inflation's localized um, it's all local. There's mm. national. Like, I hate when people talk about national inflation. I'm like, dude, I'm right. in greater Boston. My inflation is different than the guy living in Jackson, Mississippi. Like we don't have the same inflation oh, yeah. profile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sorry. We don't. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's delayed, but it's, it's good, broad enough data. Okay. Oh, well, that makes sense. And I think that kind of, uh, I think Robert won that argument then. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, Robert. Uh, he had one other follow-up question to that um, with uh, regards to CPI. Uh, which has more influence on the OER, the housing costs or interest rates? Ooh, that is a really, really good question. So, uh, okay, okay, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get a little. This may. This may surprise you. I'm gonna get a little complicated on here. Oh, oh. All right. Exciting. CPI is a part of the interest rate in the economy. All right, so the market interest rate, we look at the Fisher equation, is your normal interest rate equals your real your desired real rate rate of return plus inflation, which is represented as pi subscript e. Um, so inspected expected inflation. So uh, the Fed puts out this data that's like the five year long run horizon inflation. Um, it's at three point one six percent. The Fed ideally wants it to be a two percent, mm-hmm. um, but it's at three point one six percent right now. And what that basically says is that you should expect over the next five years that you should have an annual inflation rate of 3.16%, which we're way, way, way over. Um, But the change in CPI is expressed inflation. So if we take the normal to interest rate and we say, okay, the Fisher Fisher equation, the normal interest rate is your real rate of return plus expected inflation. So if you want 2% return and you're expecting inflation to be 3.16%, you should charge a nominal interest rate. Your coupon rate should be 5.16%. So hmm. it's it's not that they're completely two completely different things. One dictates the other, but there's also a factor, which is real rate of return. This is why I hate neg- the, the, the topic of negative interest rates. I, I sold <laughs> short-term debt. I sold $100 million of short-term debt two years ago at 13.5 basis points. I borrowed a hundred million dollars for an entire year at 13 and a half basis points i was almost angry at that because i'm like that's not real that the economy is being manipulated huh. if i can get that interest rate wow yeah. could you imagine how did you 
much oh this is for you boston i'm assuming right yeah not, the not quincy yeah. like putting in a new home or a no. new uh, addition <laughs> to the bedroom or... no no but like <laughs> okay okay it was just it was ridiculous i was so scared of arbitrage because i i mean the money just the money sweating in the corner would earn more interest than, than, I'm, <laughs> than i'm paying on it <laughs> so right. yeah not not to not to uh king solomon this i'm trying to cut the baby in half but they're one and the same they're both equally important hmm. all right um i think you kind of answered joel's question the, why do the economy and market act differently when they're both based on the purchasing and selling of goods and services? Oh, I, I just, just, I just, I, I just I think you kind of that. demolished that a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying to be mean there. Basically <laughs> saying the... Uh, yeah, consumption does... Uh, consumption is the largest portion of GDP, but it's mm-hmm. not what drives your economy. It's it's capital ac- accumulation that drives it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm no, sorry. I, did, I didn't read that with that question before. <laughs> yeah, that was very unprofessional. <laughs> No, no, no. It was a good question, too. Joel will love it. Joel will love it. (laughs) Can't wait to get, like, just just spits on a piece of paper and mails it to me. I know, right? (laughs) What else you got for uh, from Eric? Um, One other question (laughs) I had, and good emphasis there on the... No, that's how I knew it was me, is when the hard hard K came out as compared to the hard C in that scenario. I'd hit a K. What would you do for like for would you, for Eric with the C? Would you do like Eric? Like, that... <laughs> Eris. Yeah. I just pronounce it as an S. You can call it like my, my wife from the South. So a lot of people, a lot of my in-laws, and uh, you know, when I go back down to West Virginia, it's Eric. Eric. Like, oh, Eric. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, That's you know, yep. a couple less chromosomes, a couple less vowels. You just <laughs> oh, man, just a... um isolating everybody today i was curious what you what your thoughts are i feel like i have some of the answer already but um the the bond market do you track that at all and specifically as it pertains to um both economics and the markets to me at least it seems like it would inform both sides to some degree but um curious your thoughts yeah, I uh, I monitor the bond market so close that I almost sometimes feel like I'm going insane. There we go. Good. Um, so, uh, obviously, I deal a lot in the bond market. Uh, just so far this year, I've sold about two hundred seventy-five million dollars in in uh, public bonds. Uh, this year, I'll probably close out close to half a billion by the time I'm done. Um, yeah, I follow it very closely. So. Particularly with something I'm always interested in, and Eric, you may be familiar with this data series, and Kyle, I might have brought this up on a previous time I was on, is HQM, high quality market bonds. So um, the Federal Reserve, the FRED database, they, they carry this data for your high quality market bonds. Basically, those are any corporate bonds rated between A and AAA. Um, so yeah, I track that a lot because I pay the, I pay those expenses. Like I pay when the market, when, when, yeah, so here's the funny thing. I've been in meetings, fairly recent policy meetings, where people are surprised when they hear that, wait, wait, wait a minute, our bonding rate went down, but the Fed raised rates. And I have to talk about it. like bond markets are so efficient nowadays that if they they have already worked in that 25, that 25 basis point increase, they've already baked in that information. So when the when it settles, there's no that that little tinge, that 10, 15 basis points of uncertainty if something crazy happened evaporates, and now you have a lower rate. What's crazier though is we do negotiated debt sales, so we don't do competitive bond sales anymore in the city. So I don't have a um, you know competitive bond sales. It's just like you show up on a Tuesday, 
you're selling hundred million dollars and 18 companies put in their offer blind. And then you rip them open at 12, 15 in the afternoon and the lowest guy wins. We start uh, two weeks out from the date of sale negotiating. We are underwriters negotiating with large banks mm. um, in order to figure out to get the best deal. So, you know, I was doing a deal. This is all public, public record to public, public access. Um, I was doing a deal about, maybe like a year ago. And I got a call from the uh, Royal Bank of Canada and we had a, we had a note that was coming due from, or sorry, we were selling, we were selling a bond and they had a portion of the bond they wanted to buy that was due in 13 years. And they gave us a killer interest rate on it. Like they, they were like 75 basis below market, but we weren't allowed to call the bond. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, Mm. dude, rates are going up, man. Yeah. You want to give me 75 basis points? Yeah. Hell yeah. I'll take that. So, yeah, so we monitor it a lot, and it's, that's how we're able to make these more educated decisions. But it starts with that good macroeconomic data from from Fred, and then working backwards to see how, you know, if you're like Joe Biden being in office is really good for municipal bonds because they're tax free. Oh, you were going to say Public comedy, day. but okay. Oh, <laughs> I stay away from the politics. <laughs> you're um, in politics. <laughs> no, I'm in the public sector. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I tell myself. Yeah. That's what my TED talk was about. Yeah. No, I don't. I just gotta uh, make friends with the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, we we when we have deficit spending, when we have, you know, usually Democrats elected, that usually means higher taxes, which means there's a flight to tax free financial vehicles. So we get to benefit mm. from that. I see. So, yeah. So, so that's why you guys all vote blue. <laughs> so Massachusetts is the bluest state in the world. <laughs> so I got Miss Liz in office. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we keep going for hours, but it looks like Eric's got a hard stop here in the next couple of minutes. So we should probably probably wrap things up here. Um, does anybody have anything else they'd like to leave uh, listeners with before we uh, wrap this thing up? Actually, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate being on and like, you, you guys let me ramble. I was surprised we were able to talk about economics for the full hour. I thought for sure we'd have some history conversation in here somewhere. <laughs> we could do that later. <laughs> I think we might have to. <laughs> All right, folks. That's going to take us to the end of this episode. Uh, i got to say thank you to everybody who stuck around to the end. Thanks to Eric and Eric for uh, dropping by. If you'd like to hear more from either of the two guys here, we can, we'll can. we have all their uh, links in the episode description, so you can check them out there. Check us out at twobullsinachinashop.com. Be back. <sighs> Nailed we'll be back it. in here soon with another exciting episode. But until then, stress that five star rating like it's a hard K and take care. <laughs> that, <laughs> oh my God, you guys uh, are pissing. I love that. That was a blast. <laughs>
I had on a lot of this stuff, man. You, uh, you get it. You get it. And sometimes talking to some people who are more active in, in trading, they don't get mm-hmm. it. And it's a little fun to talk to somebody who, who knows their shit as well as you do. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. It's, this stuff's all like super fascinating to me. So it's a lot of it is just general, general into interest. I think the, like the parallel between economics and markets is super cool. And I always joke with Kyle because I do talk about economics a lot, not obviously anywhere near the uh-huh. same um, level of efficacy that you do, but as it impacts like the trading world for me. So I, I think that that's a fun dialogue. Yeah. One of the things I hate about my field is we're, we're such elitist <laughs> pricks sometimes. Economics is for everybody, dude. It's like, it's like the, I'm like a, like, a, I don't know if you saw my, my, my professional page is called the informal yeah. economist. Cause like, I hate the fact that we make economics out to be this like elitist field. Mm. All my great mentors in economics have been like, you got to democratize it, man. Economics isn't anything advanced. It's common sense in a language we don't understand. That's all economics is. There's nothing fancy to it. Yet we sit here, we're like the marginal. Blah, blah, blah. We talk about these <laughs> massive fucking 30 syllable <laughs> words that mean absolutely nothing. All right, we're a field that has named an entire study the shoe leather tax. Oh, God. Like, the shoe. That, like, we're insane, and we try and act as if we're like the you know this elitist group. We're not. It should be democratized. Hang on, I'm writing that one down. I gotta look that up. <laughs> yeah, I feel like honestly, uh, some traders do the same thing too. But yeah, I think um, it's always a, a pleasure to talk with economists I, I always get a kick out of it because part of the reason why i think traders can operate successfully is because we're fucking stupid and we don't know everything and we know we don't know everything <laughs> and that's kind of what unlocks the door for me to willingly take risk is my own ignorance to some degree so yeah I, it's, I love that shit dude that's that's what's important and like you it's not about not having enough information so you have the right amount of information like that's what it is. You right, you, exactly. You have the right amount, exactly. and you're making good actual yep. decisions. This is why I'm an Austrian. I'm not an Austrian because I have this like moral belief and stuff like no, dude. I'm an Austrian because I just think the guy who's transacting, the dude who's making the trade, knows more about his personal economy and knows more about his risk profile and knows more about his willingness to engage in the market than I'll ever know. I don't give a, give a crap how many degrees I've hanging on my wall. All right, that guy who's transacting, he's the economy, and I shouldn't sit in some ivory tower and be like, well, actually, you should have done this like that's bullshit you can always make up the imaginary thing that could have happened but the guy who's making the decision that's the economy 